Let me share a little bit about myself before I start. Some of you know me, others of you don't. Um, I'm an ex-army officer, so some of my language will be very military, so forgive me for that. I spent 10 years in the British Army, got saved in the British Army while I was doing three-year study at Cambridge. And uh, then I left and went into business. So I've five years in business, around my own company called Construction Services International, sending people, project teams, out around the Gulf area to build big, uh, big projects. Then we got called to the mission field. And uh, Rachel and I went off to Africa, and uh, initially based in Africa, I was the crusade di director for a man called Reinhard Bonnke. And for five years, we worked as his crusade director, first in Africa and then in Asia, uh, a little bit in Latin America as well. That's about five, five and a half years. And then I came back to England, and I pastored, I was an Assemblies of God pastor, I pastored a group of churches, four churches just north of London, and uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful time, and I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot of the lessons on the cross during that time of pastoring, and uh, also during that time, my wife's ministry grew, and her ministry grew, and it grew. And so for eight years later, I'd handed out all of the, the, the churches to other people, and I began to work for my wife's ministry. We set up the London Prayer Net, the M25 Prayer Net. And uh, at the same time, I was also working with Brother Yun. Some of you might know Brother Yun, the heavenly man. So I traveled with Brother Yun for five years, uh, just um, watching the Spirit of God moving and challenging people on the, the kingdom of God. Then um, in 2005, God hijacked me. And uh, I was called to go to Oxford and become an Anglican vicar. And I thought it was a demonic thing, but, <laughs> but I, could, I, I wrestled with it, and finally I obeyed God, and he took me into Oxford, and I became the vicar of St. Aldate's, beautiful church right at the center of, of Oxford. And uh, I didn't know why God had moved me there, but I just felt God whispering into my spirit, I'm bringing you here to be on the front line, uh, really the front line of a move of the spirit to touch Muslim people. And so we began a prayer meeting called Mahaba. Mahaba means love in Arabic. We prayed, prayed every Tuesday morning, and it just grew right across the churches. After five years, it was uh, such a, a dynamic ministry. Uh, Muslims had been coming to Christ. We'd formed an Iranian fellowship. We're about to start an Arabic and an Urdu fellowship. Trained a lot of people. And then I left St. Aldate's, and by then, Mahaba had already spread to Cardiff, Bristol, Nottingham, Birmingham, London, uh, about 10 cities spontaneously started taking our model. So I'm now working full-time just planting on, on, or helping to inspire Mahaba groups, Mahaba network all over England. But it's all, already reached places in Europe who are wanting to connect to this Mahaba network. Mobilizing the body of Christ to face the facts but not fuel the fear. And too many Christians are in fear. Love never fails. Muslims in their thousands will come to Christ when we wake up and begin to love them. Amen? So let's look at unlocking the power of the cross. Father, we want to thank you for the power of this subject. And Lord, this subject preaches itself. And Lord, we, we pray that the Spirit of God would just impact each one of us individually where we're at that revelation would come, that it wouldn't just be learning, but revelation would come to each one of us. In Jesus' name. So let's look at the first two scriptures, 1 Corinthians 1, 
17 and 18. And all of these scriptures, virtually everything I say is down in my notes. So you can relax. If you want to put down revelations you get individually, uh, do write them down because often God preaches a different sermon to you. <laughs> so this is what Paul was writing. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then the next scripture is in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 to 5. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So this is a one-theme series. This is just about the cross. Obviously, we'll have a few rabbit trails. But it's my understanding of the cross. And everybody who looks at the cross understands it differently. So you'll have to forgive me. I think pictorially, um, some people think of the cross as from minus to plus. That was a great bonky booklet that went out a few years ago. So that is a, a, one way of looking at the cross. Other people see it as uh, that connection from heaven to earth, heaven finally connecting to earth. Other people see it as God embracing the whole of humanity. But my understanding of the cross is this turning the cross of sacrifice into the sword of the Lord. Sword of victory. And that is what I'm going to preach on. And I want to just give you the overview before I start, just so you know where I'm going. Because this is my understanding. I'm going to talk about seven stages of the cross. And obviously, when we, when we first start, we are... It's before the cross. We're sold into slavery. Can you see that? Maybe you could lift. I don't know if you can lift that up at all. But uh, can you see that writing? Sold into slavery. That's the dark picture of what it was before the cross. And then the first stage of the cross is when we have Jesus on the cross. And that is when we're saved from the slavery to Satan. That is the first stage of the cross. The second stage of the cross is me on the cross. Saved from the power of sin ruling through my old man. You can see you're beginning to get a handle on the cross. <laughs> the third one, the third stage of the cross, is myself on the cross, but it's daily. And this is when I'm saved from the power of self, ruling through my flesh. And that takes us to the fourth stage of the cross, which is really the critical moment and where many people miss out, the critical moment of covenant transfer. And this is where we are <clears throat> have to understand the world is also on the cross. It's a crossover point from minus to plus. Some people never cross over, and I'll be going into that in detail. And that takes us when we cross over into the fact that we are then understanding the covenant. We're covenanted to Christ. We cross over from Satan into sonship. Then the sixth stage of the cross is we're covenanted to his body. We cross over from self into service. And finally, we're covenanted back into the world to seek and save the lost, just like Christ, crossing over from sin 
into suffering. So that's the progression of the cross that I'm going to go through. Many people see it differently, but I'm going to go through all of those. And obviously, it may sound quite clinically do, doing it like, like that, but I think it might help you to understand how the cross works. So we're talking here about two different types of people. We're talking about those who are being deceived by the devil and who are going to hell. Now, we've got to realize that. Um, I'm afraid the, um, the PowerPoint can't be turned off. So in between, you'll just have to forget about the PowerPoint, and then I'll point you to the PowerPoint. But we're talking about people who are going to hell. Some people who are just, uh, just like lemmings, have no concept of it. And dear General Booth used to talk about the fact that he needed to, or he wished he could, hand, hang his street teams for 20 minutes over hell before he sent them out. Because he said, they need to have a motivation. They need to be motivated by what people are saved from. And we've got to get that understanding. And often in our churches, we don't have that understanding of hell. It's not preached about enough. So that's the first thing. Those who are being deceived by the devil and who are going to hell. But then secondly, there are those who are being saved by God's direct intervention and God's direct action on the cross. And we've got to realize that there are two laws. There's the law of sin and death, and that is what's gripping those other people. And there's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But they are laws. And those laws work. A law is a law. The law of sin and death will always drag people down. They will always be sucked down. It doesn't matter what you do. You can try and push the, the sin down. You can try and hide it. But sin will always pull you down. But in, it's like the law of gravity. But in the natural, there is another law, and I know I'm stretching a point, but there is a law of aerodynamics. You can actually take a choice to step onto the plane, and you don't have to do a thing, you don't have to know how it works, but it will lift you up. And you see, it is a step, it's simple step of decision to get on the plane. So many people hang around the airport, but they won't get on the plane. Get into Christ. There is a higher law, and it's the law of the spirit of life. It's in Christ Jesus. We've got to recognize that. People need to get in. You don't have to know how the cross works. You don't have to know how an airplane works. You've just got to get in there and trust it. If you panic and think, I've got to do something, I've got to, I've got to do my own thing, and you open the door and start flapping, you're gone. And it's the same, many Christians think they can do that. They step into Christ and think, help, I've got to do something. Works, works, works. And they've got to try and prove something. They start falling. They get sucked down. So there are those two laws, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law of sin and death. The one thing that decides between those two groups is how they personally respond to the cross. Now, that seems so crazy. It seems so unreal. And that's why I was so mad at Christians when I, was, I asked my colonel to give me three years' leave to go to Cambridge to disprove Christianity and religion. I hated Christians because of this one thing. I hated the fact that they were talking about hell and, and damnation and sin. I just thought you know, it just made no sense to me. It was foolishness. And so I, I, I went to Cambridge and 
I furiously read and read and read different books on religion to try and package it and, and just prove that it was just a mirror image of societies that framed it. And I did all that, and then I began to meet these awful people called born-again Christians who just got up my nose because they began to talk about the wonderful thing that I got rid of religion and I could finally concentrate on, on the relationship with Jesus himself. So that started my second dissertation to try and disprove Jesus. And that's how I got saved. Because the more you focus on him, the more you're attracted to him. And that's the wonderful thing. You know, you, if, just let people study. Let people try and disprove. Because if you fo- whatever you focus on, you will be attracted to. So finally, after a lot of wrestling, I had an extraordinary encounter with God. And while I was writing my, my notes, God just spoke to me. And I just knew that he was right there. The presence of God came into the place where I was. And I knew that I was wrong. He was alive. He was the son of God. The odd thing is, I didn't get saved for 18 months. Intellectually, totally converted. I knew it all. I knew the Bible better than all the Christians in my CU. I had read right through the Bible before I even got saved. It took me 18 months to be brought to the foot of the cross. It was 18 months later. It took me 18 months of trying to live the Christian life before finally I surrendered. 18 months of helping alcoholics and drug addicts and trying to do it. Do it, do it. Be be a Christian. Finally, I was totally empty and God just gave me an ultimatum. How can you really know me? It's not by believing in me because the devil believes and he trembles. He said, you'll only really know me when you surrender everything, all the bad and all the good, everything into my hand. And at the foot of the cross, I got saved. So I know what it feels like to wrestle, but it seems foolishness to so many people. What I found is that God deliberately offends the minds of intellectuals. He deliberately offends human intellect, human wisdom. That's why I love being in Oxford. It is so offensive to an intellectual mind, because I'm not a theologian. I've never been to Bible college, but I've met him. To the Jews and to the Muslims, the cross is totally offensive. It just, it just is so wrong. It doesn't make sense. Everybody else is total nonsense. But to us who simply believe, it's the power of God for salvation. So we read in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of this cross. And we don't have to be ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's got to be so easy that an Oxford graduate can even get it. And anybody who's just submenses, it's got to be easy for a child. It's got to be so simple that a child can pick it up and run with it. And we mustn't get intimidated by militant atheism, humanism, and there's so much gunning for us at the moment. <clears throat> I don't know if you've picked up on the internet, but there's, there is militant atheism and militant humanism trying to wipe out pockets of the Holy Spirit. The movement of hots healing on the street are trying to be, they're trying to close it down. In fact, they've succeeded in, in Bath and a few other places because uh, of, they say it's false claims. They actually won a legal case. It's, it's militant, but we mustn't be intimidated that. 
The enemy is going to rage. But Psalm 2 says, you know, why does the enemy, if we can watch the enemy raging in vain, Jesus sits enthroned in heaven and he laughs. (laughs) So we are going to be facing some rough stuff in the future, but we mustn't back off the simplicity of the cross. Our greatest enemy is our own strength and our own wisdom. And I feel man's downfall is his own making. God likes to shame the wise and the strong by simply blessing the weak and the foolish. He he chooses the weak. He chooses the foolish, people like us. He chooses us to shame the wise. He calls the lowly. He calls the despised. Many of us, you know, never thought that God would ever care about us, but yet we suddenly find everyone qualifies. Why does he do that? So that nobody else can take the glory. We've got to get to that place of absolute brokenness. And so often people don't get to the foot of the cross. Now this declaration of the cross, I'm not ashamed of the cross, this declaration of the cross should trigger something. When the cross is preached, it should happen. When the cross is preached, it releases its power. It's the preaching of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. When we preach it, something should happen. Something should suddenly happen in people's minds, in their spirits. Signs and wonders begin to happen. The power of God begins to happen. Let me give you some background to those two scriptures in Corinthians. Paul was desperate. He was zealous. He just wanted to just go and sweep right through the whole of Asia. I preached a little bit about this in Ephesians. Uh, two years ago, but Paul just so wanted to go and take out the demonic strongholds. So we read in Acts 16 that he tried to get into Asia, and the Spirit of Christ stopped him. Jesus just stopped him in his tracks, and he got a call. Instead of from Asia to Asia, he got a call to Europe, over to Macedonia, and he went on walkabout. He went through five different cities, and all of that time, God was wrestling with this intellectual because he hadn't yet got it. He had to understand the spiritual realm. He had to to understand the power of the cross. He had to understand the victory of that cross, that it wasn't just Jesus on the cross. It could be turned to sort of victory. He had to get through to that. So he went through all those different cities. He did go through a very intellectual city called Athens. Now in Athens... As an intellectual, he thought he'd play their game. And he played their game. He just started debating with them. And uh, he began to start talking about uh, Jesus in, in intellectual terms. And nothing happened. There was no riot. And there was no revival. Normally, that's what happens. There's a riot and there's a revival. And he got really puzzled. It did not have any impact at all in Athens. So Paul had to start thinking about this. What is going on here? It was fruitless. It was powerless. And what they were gripped by in Athens is exactly what we're gripped by in in Oxford and in our society. It's humanism. It's it's just a complete rationalism. It's all the isms that just grip our mind. It is exactly the same thinking. 
Paul realized something's got to happen here. I've got to change. He had to walk all the way from Athens to Corinth. And you can imagine on that way, he was wrestling with God. God, why? Why? No riot and no revival. What happened? God, tell me. And so God began to show him the foolishness of his ways and began to show him that he could no longer start preaching as intellectual. He had to change his whole tactic. So he resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. By the time he got to Corinth, he thought, I'm going to go for it. I've got the message now. The message is not because I'm an intellectual. The message is, the power is in the message. I've got to simply preach the message, not rationalize with people and and wrestle with their thoughts. I've got to simply preach the message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's all he did. He simply came in weakness and he preached the power of God. And he said, listen, don't just listen to my words. The power of God's moving here. People were getting healed and there, there was tremendous power being released in Corinth. The Spirit of God moved. You see, if we get gripped by humanism, rationalism, what happens is church slowly begins to take on a form of religion which denies the power. 2 Timothy 3.5. We get to the place where it refuses absolutes, it, ref- it makes everything very relative, everything's synthetic thinking. But you see, the Bible's not, not synthetic. It's not relative. It's black and white. It's this or that. It's very, very clear. We've got to change our thinking to think biblically. And I've realized over the years, and if you look at revival, and dear Andrew here has been studying and studying revival for ages now, if you look at revival, If you preach the old cross, you get the old power. If you preach a watered-down cross, which so many places, that's what I'm hearing, a watered-down cross, you get no power. The cross has become so sanitized, so sentimental, so plastic. But it was gruesome. It was awful. You know, the cross was awful. We can't sentimentalize it. We've got to recognize the awful what gruesome stuff happened on that cross. The cross cost God everything. And I mean everything. He lost everything. God, who did not even withhold his son, will he not freely with him give us all things? That's Romans 8. And he, he knew it was going to cost him everything. And having given everything, wouldn't he also give us everything else? He wants so much to give us. But we've got to be very careful because the new cross is very subtle. We've got to be aware of constant counselling. Yes, I do a lot of counselling, but we've got to be very careful of counselling because flesh is flesh. And a lot of counselling just rearranges the flesh. Counselling that does not lead people to the cross is not successful. People need to get to the cross. They need to be cut free. Because, you see, flesh can very easily clothe itself in religion. It can look pretty. It can look religious. It can look holy. still flesh. And God didn't come to improve our lives. He came to remove our lives. The cross is about God removing you out of the scene. And so often we, we, in counseling, we're trying to improve people's lot and rather than bringing to the cross and say, listen, this has got to die. 
You know, the cross is about you dying. And I'll go through all of this. But if we can bring people to that, suddenly they're free of it. They can walk free. They can be new creations. Too many people rearrange the flesh and end up with the same problems. We've got to allow the cross to do its work. I remember when I was wrestling with this as a, as a soldier, I was, I was wrestling with a lot of things in my own personal life, and I just kept on pulling out the pathetic, weak and pathetic card. And, you know, I would go into counselling, and I said, but, you know, I'm just weak and pathetic. I've got this problem with, with this and that, and you know, I've got all these problems. And I remember somebody looking me straight in the face, and I could, it just was like a slap in the face. He said, listen, the cross won't work for you if you're just pathetic. He said, until you say, I'm guilty, the cross will not help you. You've got to admit, face the fact, and take responsibility for the guilt of what you've allowed to be sown into your life. Stop messing with this, I'm pathetic, I'm weak, I'm this. Just admit to God, God, I am so sorry that I'm guilty of allowing this into my life. Instantly, the cross and the blood will touch you. You will be free. And I have found that again and again in counselling. Even people who've been brutally uh, wounded, people who've been badly abused, as long as they stay victims, they don't get free. The moment they put their hands up and say, God, I am so sorry. They're not saying sorry for what happened to them. They're saying sorry to God for what they allowed to come into their hearts. Because our hearts are the wellsprings of life. We have to guard them. And I found again and again, as soon as people say, God, I'm so sorry that I've harbored this resentment, I've harbored this anger, <clears throat> instantly they're free of the whole thing. As long as they walk around the wilderness of being victims, they don't get free. So we've got to recognize the cross is gruesome, but it's effective. And once you see it, you never want to mess around again. You see what it costs Jesus. Now, we cannot save people through a liberal, compromising message. Truth that sets people free is black or white. It's right or wrong. And Paul remembered his failure, and he began to start walking through all of this. And as God began to break through, suddenly he got the revelation. He had a spirit revelation of the cross. He knew that's it. That's what's going to get people free. And that's why in Corinth he changed his whole message. It's only a revelation of the cross that sets you free. I knew about the cross for years. Never got a revelation. You've got to get a revelation. Just as Peter got a revelation, revelation you're the Christ it's the same thing if when we get that revelation of the cross it works in our hearts and truth is spiritually discerned it's not intellectually worked out it's spiritually discerned so as we begin this whole process can I just plead with each of us don't try and work it out intellectually ask God in every one of these sessions. God, show me something. Show me. Give me a revelation of this in my spirit. I want to see this. And we need to put our minds on the altar, put our whole being on the altar. It says in Romans 12, verse 2, he says, don't conf be conformed, or don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've got to get our minds renewed. We've got to start thinking God's thoughts. 
And I know it's so easy to think the way of the world. God's thoughts, not our thoughts. We've got to change that and beware of trusting our human words of wisdom, even to human theology. So the cross has got to be at the center. We've got to take up our cross daily and follow him. It's a daily thing, understanding it. And I have been in evangelical circles for years. So many people just go to the cross, ticket, been there, done that, and they walk on. They know all about the cross. I know all about that. No, you've got to take up your cross daily. It's understanding it's a daily thing. We've got to understand it's, it's working in us and through us daily. It's the key to say, be, being saved, but it's also the key to, key to keep on being saved. The key to being saved in the future. Now, I want to just confront one thing. Signs and wonders, great though they are, healings, miracles, they don't transform people's lives. They are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. Transformation happens at the cross. You see, signs and wonders and miracles and healings, <clears throat> you can see them all the time. But it's the cross and the work of the cross that actively does something deeper inside us. I remember when I was a crusade director, I was in Manila, massive city. We were having a big crusade in the Luneta Plaza in, in Manila. And I said to Rana Bonka, there's no way we're going to break through here. Catholicism was so strong. They'd had an extraordinary supernatural move of some spirit the week before, apparitions in the heavens. The Virgin Mary had appeared. There was incredible things happening which had just confronted us. The priests had been telling people, don't, don't go down to the Luneta Plaza. So they all went. <coughs> But I remember, I said to Bonke, there's no way you can do six nights. You've got, to, you've got to extend it and do ten nights. He preached and preached and preached. Every night we saw healing miracles. The first five, five days there were goiters dropping off people, blind eyes opening, cripples walking, deaf. It was just extraordinary healing. Nobody saved. Five nights. The miracles did not, you see, the, the Bible, my Bible says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And that blindness was so strong on people, they could even see the miraculous on the stage and their eyes were not being opened. We had a thousand intercessors behind the platform, crying out to God every day. Every day they were so frustrated. They could not break this demonic spirit that was, that was holding Manila captive. On the fifth day, I heard a shout behind the platform. And it was like something electric went straight across the whole crowd. It was only a small crowd of about 80,000. But, but the thing just exploded. I mean, it just exploded. And suddenly, it was like people's eyes were open. And yes, there were miracles that night. But when he gave the altar call, 80% of the crowd just ran forward. Because you see, they were gripped. They could not be transformed until they saw. And you see, people needed to see the power of the cross. They needed to see what Jesus had done for them. Yes, they'd seen all the miracles, and we've got to be very careful. We've got to bring people to the cross. <clears throat> I won't go on. I think you've got the message. But Luke 16, 31 says that even if people rise from the dead, they still won't be convinced. Still won't be convinced.
You can say to all these atheists who are trying to close down the hots, this is our record of healings. They say, absolute rubbish. There are scientific reasons why all those things happened. I remember when my wife got healed, um, the doctor just said, it must have been a miraculous spasm. <laughs> you, can't, you, see, you can't fight that. It is a wicked spirit of unbelief. It grips people's minds. So let's begin to look at the cross. First of all, let's look at the state of the world. Before the cross, everybody, all mankind, was sold into slavery. You see, Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, and they became slaves of Satan. Now, what had happened is that in those days, there was an understanding of slavery. When somebody was sold into slavery, a scroll was written. And inside that scroll was written two things. Firstly, the name of their nearest kinsman, Redeemer. And secondly, the price that it would cost to buy that slave back from slavery. So what we see is that Jesus comes as the kinsman redeemer to buy us back from slavery. Now this law of the kinsman redeemer, uh, I won't go through the scriptures, but you can see it in Leviticus 25. You can see it in Jeremiah 32. You see it in Ruth 4. Remember, Ruth went to the gate and they had that whole thing about the kinsman redeemer. But that was a legal thing. The, only that kinsman redeemer could buy back that slave and redeem them. That's the word redemption. Redemption means paying the price to buy back from slavery. So a scroll was written in terms of the redemption of mankind. But what we see in Hebrews 10 verse 7, Jesus says something. He comes to Father and he says, here, am, here I am. It's written about me in that scroll. I've come to do your will, O oh God. So you see, Jesus just stepped forward and said, Father, it's actually my name that's written in that scroll. And I know what it's going to cost. I know the lamb has been slain since the foundation of the world. I know what it's going to cost. Here am I. I've come to do your will. And you read all of you read about what happened in Revelations 5. You, re, re, you, you hear that heart cry of humanity. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can redeem mankind? They tried everywhere to find somebody who could redeem mankind. And then suddenly, Jesus appears. Jesus appears as the lamb who was slain. The lion from the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Suddenly Jesus, and it had to wait for the cross, suddenly Jesus comes and they have this cry, you are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Jesus, you're the only one who can legally open up the scroll of slavery of mankind and redeem mankind because you were slain, the Lamb of God. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. His blood purchased every man, every woman, every child that exists or will exist. He's bought us. He's redeemed us. And we've got to get that into our spirit. He has broken that slavery. When Jesus was on the cross, he shouted something. In John 19, uh, verse 30, he sh shouted, 
It is finished. Tetelestai. But that word is a word which means it has been paid for in full. And as his blood was being poured out, Jesus was shouting out, not, it's finished. He was shouting out a, a, an accountancy thing. Was, I have paid this debt in absolute fullness. There's nothing left to be paid. I have paid this debt in full. That was the shout he knew. It's done. I have purchased with my blood every man, every woman, and every child. And that's why we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer, we don't have to be slaves to sin. We don't have to be slaves to sickness, to the curse, to poverty, to all of the rubbish that Satan inflicted on us. He broke it. He paid for it. And that's the good news, but it needs a response. It needs acceptance. Every slave has a choice. See, slaves in those days could actually choose not to be set free. They could be taken to the doorposts and have a nail shoved through their ear. Pretty gruesome. But you know, a slave has a choice. We are free to choose either to be free of these things or to stay enslaved. And many people, millions in fact, still choose to stay enslaved. Even though it's paid for, they still choose to stay slaves of the devil. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed all the powers and all the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And you see, on the cross, it was a once and for all total defeat of every principality, every power. He broke their grip. Satan's hold was broken totally over each one of us. So the devil has no legal right to hold people in slavery unless they choose to reject that offer of redemption. It says in John 16.11, talks about judgment. It says when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict us or convince us of certain things. And he's going to convince us in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now we need to realize that the sentence has been passed, but the judgment has not yet happened. And a lot of people say, God, why can't you just close down on everything? Why can't you just close the books and judge the devil and stop all this mess? Because you see, God is, has a moral government that he has to keep to. His moral government says that if he, although the, the devil is sentenced, the judgment hasn't been carried out yet. If he brings down the hammer and the judgment happens, at the same time, he also has to bring every man, woman, and child to judgment. And this is the time of grace, where God's allowing the enemy still to have room to move, but there will come a day when we are brought to judgment and the devil will be brought to judgment as well. Bang! That is the final day. It's a day of grace. We've got to understand that... The, you know, the devil has been sentenced. Already in the court of heaven, the devil is already sentenced. But the judgment will come in the future. So, the first stage of the cross, Jesus on the cross. This is what we know so well. Jesus on the cross, saved from the slavery to Satan. Yes, this saves us from the slavery to Satan. 
it totally deals with every single claim that Satan has over us. But that's only half the picture. What about God's longing to be restored to intimacy with, it, with us? One is the negative. Yes, God's rescued us from the negative, but what about the positive? What about God's passion and longing to be walking in the garden with us again? Where are you? That's the longing of God's heart. Where are you? He's not just wanting to set us free. He's wanting to be bonded with us. How does he restore us to live in his presence with him? This is where we need to recognize our state. Let's look at this, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, we've got to understand that. We were objects of God's wrath. We don't preach about that much. We've got to understand, and we've got to feel what it is, the wrath of God. I'm a parent, and lots of you are parents, and uh, I'm sure you understand a little bit about wrath. (laughs) But you see, as parents, we do have two sides to us. You know, we have absolute wrath against disobedience and, you know, the the things that are gripping our kids, but we have an absolute passion for our kids. They're two different faces. And our child sometimes only see the the face of wrath. (laughs) We've got to show them both sides. But you see, God is our parent too. He has both faces. He has the face, face of his wrath. He hates sin. He hates it. There's a wrath against it. The moral part of God is outraged at sin, but he has a passion for us, loves us, longs for us. And we've got to see those two. Hatred of sin and rebellion, but mercy for sinners. Now the thing is, it's our sin of independence and disobedience that's creating that reaction in God. I often used to think that Adam's sin was, was taking that apple. Adam's sin was purely the fact that he wanted to live in independence. He wanted to do his own thing. Independence is the prime sin. Taking the apple was the fruit of it. His sin was he wanted to be independent, live independent from God. And it's that root that has got to be dealt with. We've got to face up to that root in us. We've got to bring that to us. Yes, he loves us, but he's outraged at this thing in us. Our rebellion and our independence really offends him. And we need a revelation of how much our sin wounds him and how much he's paid for it. We read in 1 John, I think that's up here, we read in 1 John 2 too, that he became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And what we've got to recognize is this whole thing about the blood. In Leviticus 17.11, it talks about how Uh, here it is, that the life of the creature is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. Listen to this. It is the blood that makes atonements for one's life. So God knew, Jesus knew what it was going to cost him. He needed to pour out everything. All his blood had to be poured out to atone 
for all of the sin that we had. He had, you know, it cost him everything. He had to pour out all of his blood. Now we talk uh, theologically about a great word of propitiation. I used to hate that word, propitiation. But propitiation means fully satisfying the wrath of God. Fully satisfying the wrath of God. But most people believe in expiation. We just wipe it out. It's not wiped out. It had to be fully satisfied. Jesus, somebody had to pay. And often we, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. We think, well, no, God's a loving God. He'll just, he'll just overlook it. No, he had to pay for it. He actually had to pour out all of his blood. He had to, God had to give his son. He had to pour out everything. It was propitiation, fully satisfying the wrath of a holy God, not just expiation, wiping it out. And that is so important. He was humiliated. He was stripped bare. He was flogged. He was lacerated. If you've seen The Passion, it's gruesome. I'm sure most of you have seen The Passion. It's gruesome. We've got to realize that's what it took. Stripped naked, flogged, nails put in his hand, put on that cross, absolutely brutalized, hanging there in agony. All for me. And you see, when you get that understanding, all for me, suddenly you realize you, you stop messing with sin. You realize this costs him something. When, he, when I do stuff, it costs him. And you see, we've got to bring that to people again. You see, our cheap grace is not good news. And there's so much cheap grace going out today. It's a false gospel. It doesn't set people free. They might have a a little touch of the Spirit, but it doesn't set them free. I watch so many Christians who are touched by the Spirit, but yet still not free. People say, you're in a mess. Come on, come to Jesus. He'll clean you up. He'll heal you. Yes, he does all of that. But first we have to face the outrage, the absolute outrage of Father God to our rebellion and our independence. And I believe that we get totally free when we come in brokenness and repentance to him. Say, God, God I've given, I'm going to give up. I'm going to give you it all. Give up my independence and my rebellion. I'm so, so sorry. Suddenly, we begin to get free. Freedom starts by taking responsibility and repenting. Yes, he's going to forgive us, but he needs us to see sin as he sees it and then hate it. God, I was wrong. God, I'm sorry. We hate those two words, saying I was wrong. It's great in counseling to actually get people to say, I was wrong. And say to other people, I am so sorry. Those two words are magic. <laughs> they do. They do so much. And so God poured out all his righteous anger, his wrath, his punishment onto Jesus. And sin cannot be overlooked. Jesus took it all. We, we know the scripture in Isaiah 53 so well. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorry, sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us brought us peace, was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed.
he was stricken and smitten by God. Peter picks up that whole theme in his book, in 2 Peter, talking about how he himself bore our sins in his body. He actually took our sins into his body on, on the tree so that we could die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, we're healed. You see, he was my substitute. He was your substitute. He was a scapegoat. If you remember the story of the scapegoat, you know, laying their hands on and imparting all of their sin onto that scapegoat and then chasing it off into the wilderness. You know, he took, he was the lamb that was slain. He was a scapegoat. He was a substitute for each one of us. He took it all on himself. He had to fulfill the moral government of God. And I know I'm laboring it, but we've got to see this. This is the moral government of God. We can't break the laws of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he actually became sin for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He actually became sin. I mean, can you imagine it? All of that filth, that yuck, all of the filth of, of the Holocaust, the pedophilia, murder, the adultery, the sexual sin, everything, every last drop was poured into it. He took it all. He took it all. And he took my curse. Galatians 3, he took my curse so that I could be blessed. So as I come to a close, we've got to respond. You know, we can, like I did at Cambridge, you know, I knew it all, but I wouldn't actually give my life to it. We read in Colossians, and we're going to close in these scriptures. Colossians 1. That God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or things in heaven. Listen, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you and I were alienated from God, we were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you and I by Christ's physical body through death to present you and I wholly in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation. But we've got to continue in your faith. We've got to stay on the plane. We've got to stay in him. And then the next scripture, the next chapter is Colossians 2. When we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins having cancelled the written code with all its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. This is the face we know so well, Jesus on the cross. But is it more than theology? Is it more than just something that we tick, been there, done that, understand it, I'm saved? It's got to be more than that. Are we convinced that Jesus died for us? Are we convinced that we no longer have to be slaves to the enemy. We no longer have to be slaves to sin, no longer have to be slaves to sickness, to the curse that's over us, to poverty, to all of the negative, satanic, demonic things. We no longer 
have to be that. He's got no legal, legal right to hold us. We've got to decide in our minds, decide in our spirits, no, he's got no legal right. I'm on the way out. I'm going to walk out. Yes, it doesn't change overnight. There's a journey. But we've got to choose to be free from slavery. Choose to be free from fear, from guilt, from shame. Choose to be free of the sin, the sickness, the curse. And choose far more than that. Also choose to be reconciled to a holy God. He set us free, but he wants us reconciled. And to totally and truly know that oneness with him, we've got to face up to the wrath of God. We've got to face up to our rebellion, our independence. And I know that, uh, and I've even done it myself, I've led people through to the Lord who haven't been through repentance. Last week I was printing out some stuff for another sermon I was uh, going to have to do, but I printed out famous quotes from evangelists. Virtually every one of these famous evangelists said that the key to the revival that happened was that they preached 90% the law. People are in rebellion and in independence against God. And when they finally recognize, I need saving from that hell, then the grace is preached. We tend to do it the other way around. 90% grace, maybe a little bit we talk about the law. We've got to change the way we preach. People need to know there is a moral law. It's not relative. It's not syncretistic. It is black and white. It is not something that we can just smudge over and make a relative gray area. The Bible is very clear. It's black or white. Jesus came to make it very clear. You need to be saved. My direct action of the cross is saving you from an eternity in hell without him. That's what we have to understand. People need to recognize sin has a cost. It has a price. But Jesus has taken it all. Father, we thank you for truth. We pray that the truth of this would just begin to burn in our spirits. Holy Spirit, will you just come now in the last few minutes? Will you speak to us individually? Will you bring us back face to face with that part of the cross again? That we recognize it. But we remember how Peter said that if we forget what the cross has done for us, then we become blind and ineffective. Lord, we don't want to be blind and ineffective. We want to remember daily the cost, the price of that forgiveness. So, Father, reveal it to us now. Reveal it to us now. Let's just take a few moments in the presence of God and then we're going to break for coffee. Holy Spirit, will you just minister to each one as we face Jesus on the cross? <laughs>